Le Prince was making progress on his motion picture machines, but he still needed money. He continued his work on the Civil War panoramas, following up work on the popular Monitor and Merrimack cyclorama with a comprehensive sketch of the Battle of Manassas, or the Second Battle of Bull Run, which was on the corner of 15th Street and Ohio Avenue, Washington. The process of creating this panorama took four months. The artists spent several weeks in the vicinity of Manassas sketching the country. The ever-varying light and shade of field and forest of a summer afternoon is perfect. The perspective is magnificent and the tout ensemble of the whole picture is so realistic that as one stands in the centre of the building, he seems to be in the field the painted forms alive, and he almost hears the screaming of the shells through the air and instinctively dodges a fancied ball. An article by the Washington Critic gives a vivid picture of the panorama as a venue, as an event, and as a precursor of cinema. As a work of art, the picture demands more than passing attention. As a study of history, the cyclorama is excellent, as no better idea of the famous battle and those who fought it can be gained than by half an hour spent in looking at the picture. The building is well warmed and lighted at night by 300 Edison electric lights. The platform and passages are carpeted and comfortable seats provided. An elegantly furnished ladies' parlour with toilet room and wardrobe attached adjoins the entrance. The cyclorama is here to stay. A large amount of money has been spent in erecting the building and it is a permanent affair. Lizzie would write that This broad experience in posing and photographing artistic groups and the observation of effects of colour and light on distance and foreground added greatly to Le Prince's practical knowledge and power of visualisation and led him to consider seriously the detail and cost of constructing a moving picture panorama in place of a motionless one. The Shadow Traps, Chapter 28 Sheep Jumping as Seen Through Several Lenses Le Prince still found time to conduct his experiments on motion pictures. His attempts to refine his machines were relentless and focused. When John Whitley's lawyer, Clarence Seward, offered to put him up for membership of the fashionable New York Lotus Club, he declined not wishing to be distracted from his work. However, there were times when Le Prince would allow himself to relax. Occasionally, music tempted him, wrote Lizzie, and he would return from opera or concert and play from memory any passage, march or melody that had appealed to him. His retentive memory included music 
as well as the general detail of his experiments. Interestingly, around 1885, Le Prince had spoken to his friend Henry Wolfe about work he had done on connecting a phonograph to his machines to achieve sound with his films, and of his intention of one day having moving panoramas in colours as well. Le Prince, it seems, wasn't just intent on inventing silent motion pictures. He was aiming to invent the talkies. Adolf echoes the idea that Le Prince had envisioned from the start a form of total cinema. To Augustin Le Prince belongs a credit for the conception of and first attempts to build in 1885 a machine which would record life and movement with allied sound. These twin phases to be subsequently reproduced at will. And Lizzie wrote that he even designed a specially constructed people's theatre. And this was for bringing out some stereo effects. And he wrote to Messrs Thompson and Bolt, his London patent agents, that this was one of his aims and he wanted to produce patent and popularise it. Le Prince's comprehensive vision of what might be even extended to a list written on a scrap of paper which survives to this day of possible subjects for future films which included Buffalo Bill, torpedoes and Hudson River boats. The list switches from English to French and back, horse racing, surf, circus, horse girl through paper discs, on tightrope, le jongleur, juggler, boys, boxing, jumping, fencing, trapeze, rings, bar, girls, lawn tennis, croquet, la corde, skipping rope, salt mouton, sheep jumping, or as we'd know it, leapfrog. Next to some of these subjects are numbers from one to four. Horse racing, four. Central Park fashion, three. Central Park boating, one. Skating, three. And I have no idea what these numbers mean. But Le Prince's head was obviously filling up with all the things he might go and film. He was clearly headed somewhere, and as Lizzie would explain, at times the inventor found it difficult to let a point lie in abeyance as soon as he had proved its feasibility. Le Prince's desire to spend more time on his cameras led him to develop new techniques in order to save time on his panorama work. For example, panoramas used a range of effects to appear more realistic, including the use of real foliage in the foreground. Le Prince found ways of disguising dried foliage with dyes made of coloured powder. After much unpaid experiment, wrote Lizzie, he attained results satisfactory to his critical mind, and there was less need for his continued personal direction. But as too often happens, the pioneer inventor had to content himself and bring up his family on the joy of creation. Or in other words, I suspect she means with the satisfaction of a job well done rather than increased financial reward. In 1886, Lizzie was invited to lead the art section of the Convention of Instructors of the Deaf, 
which was to be held at Barclay, near San Francisco, California. When the position was mistakenly given to another, Lizzie wrote to her father with an account of what had happened, and Joseph Whitley used his contacts to ensure that his daughter was still able to attend by securing her a commission from the English Privy Council to attend the convention as British Commissioner, tasked with the duty of reporting on the condition of art education for the deaf in America. And so, in the summer of that year, while a prince stayed in New York waiting for work on panoramas, which didn't come and so turned his mind to working out other ideas, Lizzie travelled to California and attended the convention, along with around 250 other teachers, principals and directors of institutions. She took with her an exhibit of her students' work which caught the attention of Jane Lathrop Stanford, wife of Governor Leyland Stanford. Mrs Stanford asked Lizzie to consider transferring her art school to the Leyland Stanford Junior University. Lizzie was excited by the new prospects offered to her. The excitement was in part because it would mean a release from the financial worries that were dogging the family, but also in part because it promised to be an opportunity to continue the work begun at the Leeds Technical School of Art, only now under less trammelled conditions than those experienced in New York. Returning east, however, she found Le Prince too involved with his experiments with model cameras to entertain the idea. And another sacrifice was made for moving pictures. Lizzie's account of her obvious disappointment is nevertheless accompanied by a typically staunch defence of her husband's position. She wrote that Le Prince foresaw clearly from the beginning the success his invention was destined to become as an art and as an industry. When Lizzie wrote about Stanford's offer, she commented thus, When fortune leads a victim to the gates of paradise, she first blindfolds him. You see, Lizzie had no idea at all that Leyland Stanford had been Edward Mybridge's patron and had bankrolled the experiments which had led to the revolutionary animals in motion. That Jane Stanford herself had been proactive in encouraging Mybridge's work, and that Stanford University itself was relatively progressive in that women were able to become athletes and scientists there. Was this a crucial missed opportunity for both Lizzie and Louis Le Prince? It was of little avail in those days, said Lizzie, to try and tempt him by any fine salaried position. He was convinced and persuaded me that financial returns from his invention of moving pictures would far surpass them. My gates of paradise closed with a clang. On Lizzie's return from California in September 1886, she saw a successful working model of Le Prince's camera. John Whitley had also visited Le Prince while in New York and brought with him William Guthrie, his lawyer. 
they too both saw the machines and witnessed some kind of projection. As a result, Whitley begged Le Prince to put his invention out on the market as the latest new optical toy. This less than ambitious billing, toy, might be a modest reflection on the strength of impression made by the images at this point. But Le Prince wasn't ready to go public. According to Lizzie, he sought absolute freedom from noise and vibration. This was a perfectionism that might be considered among both Le Prince's strongest and weakest points. Le Prince's mother was also aware of the work. She wrote to Lizzie, John, this is John Whitley, has given me good news of you, for he has seen you last October. This was in 1886. He knows about the photographic work and tells us that Augustine has had the idea ripening in his mind for the last 20 years. Let us hope he may not have worked in vain. In any case, it is no use to worry, for that helps nothing. If it is all tiring him too much, let him sell it and have other people do their share. Well, let's look at where Le Prince had got to with his designs for a camera. By 1886, Le Prince had developed a design for a multi-lens camera. And it was a machine that was glorious and slightly mad in appearance and his subsequent printed designs would focus on a 16 lens version of it, the lenses being arranged in four rows of four. Above them, at the top of the machine, were two viewfinders, one for each of the two rolls of film that sat side by side behind the lenses. And there was a bellows at the back of the camera, which allowed for focusing to be done whilst the camera was being operated. To understand how this camera, or as Le Prince called it, the receiver, worked, it might help to imagine Edward Mybridge's row of 12 separate still cameras, but now all shrunk and contained within a single box. Le Prince's receiver would capture images through each lens successively, just as Mybridge's sequences had been built up from a single image from each camera firing a fraction of a second after the last. But where Mybridge's sequences finished after the second or so it took for all the cameras to fire once, Le Prince's continued on and on. For behind the lenses were two rolls of gelatin film which continued to wind on and supply more and more film, while a complicated system of double shutters on each lens continued to operate as they were released repeatedly by switches connected to a battery and activated by a circular rotating switch. There seem to have been at least two important reasons for having multiple lenses rather than just one. The first, as we've said in previous episodes, was to do with speed. Le Prince needed a material that could be fed past the lens quickly, but he didn't know then what material could do that without tearing. He began by using sensitised paper, which was flexible but was not strong enough to withstand being fed through the machines at speed. Perhaps this familiarity with the tensile strength of the materials was evidence that the practical experiments from 1885 onwards had helped him refine his ideas. 
one solution was to have two reels of film in the camera. The shutters down one side of the camera could go off in succession, exposing onto the first roll of film, and then, while that first roll of film wound forwards, the second set of shutters could go off, exposing the second roll of film, and because there were two rolls working alternately, it allowed time to wind on more slowly. The second reason for multiple lenses is fascinating. We've mentioned this in earlier episodes as well. Instead of thinking of 16 individual lenses, think instead of 8 pairs of lenses, with each pair set apart roughly the distance of the average pair of eyes. Le Prince, in his US patent description, calls his projector a stereopticon, and Adolphe would write about seeing some of his father's work in relief. Evidence therefore suggests that the prince had been working on a camera which could capture stereoscopic, i.e. 3D images, the principle being, in very crude terms, that two images are taken from slightly different positions and merged together in relief by the brain. This concept, as we know, was understood in the 19th century. And this would be possible, in theory, if the shutter releases were reconfigured so that two lenses exposed at a time. So essentially, what we are talking about is a distinct possibility that Le Prince was working on a 3D movie camera in the 19th century. From the beginning, Le Prince's mind was bent upon devising methods for projection in relief, asserted Adolphe. And this is not an unreasonable claim. From a Victorian perspective, there was a hunger for the recreation of life as close to reality as could be achieved, and the constituent parts for this had all been attained separately. Colour, sound, relief, movement... The 19th century surge of invention in photography was driven by an urge to reach out and beyond. Film would soon allow the viewer to push past the static and experience motion and in the meantime, the stereoscopic photograph allowed the viewer to push past the two-dimensional and experience depth. A sufficiently ambitious inventor would not necessarily feel that attaining one required losing the other. Regardless of whether the cameras were meant to film in relief or not, the development of the receiver seemed to have reached an advanced stage. Le Prince had evidently been keeping his father-in-law apprised of his progress. A letter from Joseph Whitley to Lizzie, dated 10th of October 1886, gives Whitley's reaction to Le Prince's work thus far. My dear Lizzie, we are delighted with your buoyant hope for the near future, but are afraid of any partnership before the patent is secured, or any delay, as already several people know of it, as shown by your letters. I shall be glad to hear when the patent is secured, and have tracings of the legal drawings and terms Augustine has made, with some dollar margin in exchange for his own brain power and hand labour and experiments. Le Prince's work had been described in enough detail to both please and alarm Whitley, whose keen sense of the importance of patent protection had been honed by painful personal experience. Tell Augustine to write me, 
and if we can engage to make them, the machines, for the million, we will do so. Whitley here was offering his help as a businessman and as a supportive father-in-law. It was an offer consistent with the character of a man described by a friend as someone who had no regard for money excepting as a means for carrying out great ideals. Although Whitley's quixotic nature was now tempered by the hope for the making of the million. Joseph was excited by his son-in-law's plans, supportive of them, worried for them. I congratulate you, my dear child, and trust that your husband may keep clear of the sharks who are swarming in every part of the world to pounce upon the work of nobler minds. Pray keep us advised, not on the particulars of the invention, but upon the securing of it to your own future interest. If it is a success and means could be got, it ought to be secured in every country in the world. Joseph is asking for his daughter and son-in-law to let him know how the prince is protecting the idea. Pray keep his advised, says Joseph, but not on the particulars. Or, perhaps, for heaven's sake, don't write down how the machines work in a letter. Joseph is very careful about this point, very alive to the risk of the idea being stolen, perhaps. Such suspicion was not only felt by Joseph. Lizzie claimed, for example, that after the one and four lens machines constructed in Belmont House had been tested at the institution, Le Prince's initial plan was to take his work to Thomas Edison. Le Prince had apparently been on his way to do just that when he met a friend who strongly advised to the contrary. On the 2nd of November 1886, he applied for his US patent. The same day, the prince wrote to his good friend Richard Wilson back in Leeds. Time goes his way and finds us plenty to do, not always to our liking. But there are nice bits here and there, when we can see them, and they endure and bring pleasant reminiscences. Referring to Lizzie's trip to California with pride, First and best, my good wife is well and busy with the institution. He then continued optimistically, The patent will take a couple of months before issuing through the offices at Washington, and I shall then secure it in France, England, etc. It is in the line of dioramas and panoramas, but with figures in lifelike action. This wants keeping secret till secured. I am now making apparatus to work it practically, and if as successful as I anticipate, it will bring me back to England to work it out there. I will be delayed a little by panorama work which I expect in a week or two, but which will help me otherwise financially. Remember me to our brothers at Fidelity. This is the Freemason Lodge that they both belong to. And, hoping to read you soon, I shake hands most heartily and remain yours, Devore A. Le Prince. It seems a certain amount of sacrifices had been made in the cause of motion pictures, 
particularly by Lizzie. A great deal of time and effort had gone into the experiments too, and however vague witness testimony might have been at this point, it does seem that Le Prince was making progress, and in fact had come up with a design for what he must have hoped would be a revolutionary new machine. A handful of people knew about it. The time had come for Le Prince to reveal his design to the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or to support it in any way, please do go to the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.